Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. A lot of times I would go to work and I would feel like a fraud. I would feel like an imposter and I would want to, you know, quit and go watch Netflix and eat ice cream for the rest of my life. And <laughs> of course I couldn't do that. Um, and I was forced through that experience to grow, um, kicking and screaming, but I did. And the great thing was that this, what I was forced into was this beautiful story of this real life hero, Ernest Shackleton, who had an ability to just be present always, to be present in the moment, to never give up hope. Um, and he had this belief, this relentless belief that optimism is a form of moral courage. And so I, had, I was living in that every day and that was so helpful. It was a freaking godsend for me. And going through that and then months later when we're in the performance and at the climactic moment of the show, I'm standing, Ernest Shackleton and my character are standing on top of a mountain peak. And we hear in the distance the whistle of a whaling station. And for us, that means we found civilization and we're saved, right? We don't know how we're going to get down there, but we know that we will. And the sense of full joy and aliveness was so palpable in that moment every night. And I realized that it was, there it was. There, <laughs> there was that peak aliveness feeling, that Cindy Lauper feeling, same thing, except it wasn't just intermittent, like this was actually happening consistently every night. And I realized that I was onto something with this, that it was something that had to do with the creative process. It was about being in the moment. It was about facing directly into fears. And it was about being in service of something bigger than myself. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. 
so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Val, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I was introduced to you by way of your publicist who, uh, when she told me a a bit about what you did and I I got a chance to go and research it myself, I was very intrigued and very curious given the fact that we are both musicians, at least I was a musician uh, Mm -hmm. when I was in high school. And so I'm always intrigued by people who've made careers out of music. But uh, before we get into all that, uh, I want to start by asking you, what did your parents do for a living and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Well, my dad, who is mostly retired now, was a jazz pianist, kind of the society piano player in the Washington, D.C. area. So he would go and play at embassies and different parties and 
was basically an encyclopedia of pop music. You know, he would know any song from Cole Porter through Billy Joel. And his special talent, in addition to just being an amazing pianist, was that he could really read a room and he could suss out, you know, in a situation with Republicans and Democrats and a party that don't even like each other, um, in five minutes he's got them all singing together songs that they forgot they even knew. <laughs> and so that's what he did. And my mom was really on the other side of the coin. She worked on Capitol Hill for a long time as a secretary and executive assistant. And <clears throat> she was you know, highly organized, uh, worked for a long time for George Bush Sr., and then finally ended up uh, on her, her last position was at the CIA. We lived in McLean right by, by the CIA. And she was in an overt capacity working uh, in administration there. And that combination of personality, you know, like a really right brain, artistic, and you know, very left brain and, <clears throat> and organized, have come together. I think I'm very lucky to have that particular combination of people. And that has very much impacted what I do. And for example, one of the things, one of the things that I do is live looping, where I use my electric violin and my voice and computers and <clears throat> pedals. And it's really a collision of left brain and right brain, because it's a very sort of matrix grid way of thinking about music. And... <clears throat> I find that I've really been drawn over the course of my life to situations like that and also people like that, people who have a great combination of the right brain and the creative and who are also disciplined and organized and who can show up on time and, and all of those things together. Mm -hmm. uh, are there particular personality traits or habits that you inherited from each parent uh, that have been applied to your life today? I know, you know, you talked about how it's manifest in your work. Are there behaviors that you've seen it manifest in, in your own life? Behaviors. Let's see. Well, yeah. Uh, uh, my mom was a real planner. She was great at scheduling and organizing and chunking things down into, you know, very doable pieces of work. <laughs> and uh, I find that I'm, I'm, good at that as well. And that really manifests in just the way I try to plan my life. And my dad is just a very easygoing, um, fun, loving personality. Like he just he comes to life when he is at a piano. He comes to life when he's in a crowd of people and they're singing all together. And um, I have a lot of that in me too. I just, I, I thrive uh, on performing and collaborating and being around people. And I have that, uh, both of those sides within me. Do you remember any particular moment in which you uh, fell in love with this thing and thought, yeah, this is what I'm going to make a career out of? Uh, well, it's still evolving. <laughs> uh, but I always knew that I would do something involving music. It was just sort of assumed because it was so much a part of my family going back for many generations. My father as the jazz pianist, um, his father was a renowned cantor, singer of Jewish music, almost like an operatic tenor. And his brother and father, and you know, back for many generations. And so from a very early age, it was just part of, of of life, you know, I would sit on the piano bench with my dad and learn to sight read by uh, playing through all the Gilbert and Sullivan operettas and singing with him. Um, and 
even as I went through school and college, I, I always knew there would be something involving music. Um, but there was a big turning point for me when um, I realized that the classical world wasn't really where my heart lay. I mean, I was a very serious classical violinist for a long time. And I suddenly realized probably in during college that that wasn't really my greatest desire or, or destiny, that I, I wanted to write my own songs. I wanted to, you know, stay, I wanted to use both the things that I did, singing and playing the violin, which were always very separate activities. Um, I can't think of a particular one moment, but it was sort of an evolution from the classical world into writing songs, into trying to incorporate my violin playing into that, and then exploring the world of, of electric instruments, finding a really perfect electric instrument for my uh, uses, and figuring out a way to sing and play at the same time, and then just sort of tailor everything I did to my uh, odd uh, skill set going forward. <laughs> So it's interesting because, you know, you mentioned parents who in some way or another, both of your parents seem like they're tied to politics, uh, your mom being specifically tied to it and your dad, you know, entertaining uh, politicians. And given our sort of current political environment and given our media environment, uh, I don't think that I, I have a true understanding of what is actually happening often. I think it's often biased based on what I consume and what I read. Uh, what are the misperceptions do you think people have about the political establishment, having you know had parents who were so close to it, uh, and why is it that something like music can build a bridge between two people with such divisive viewpoints? Well, I, uh, I think that music is possibly the best way to do that. I mean, it, it just breaks down barriers when you find something in common and when you find something that is so visceral in common, you know? I mean, the musical memories are among the last to stay with you. You know, even if you are, you know, you have dementia, you know, you, you still maintain those songs that you learned when you were younger. And it just sort of brings you back instantaneously to that earlier time in your life. And so I feel very lucky to be part of something that is such a universal language that does bring people together so well. Um, and, you know, regarding the political situation, I think that, you know, the, the civil discourse was much more a part of my parents' generation and has, you know, just sort of, uh, fragmented more and more and more so that we don't necessarily have interactions with those people. You know, I think those, those lovely parties that my dad used to play at don't happen so much anymore. And I think that's a sad thing. Mm -hmm. Do you remember uh, early conversations with your parents about what you might end up doing as a career and then kind of what those were like? What did they encourage? What did they discourage? Uh, I just wonder, because I think for me, uh, having grown up in an Indian family, my dad was pretty damn clear that he did not want me to go and try to make a career out of music. And I, I don't regret that he talked me out of it since, you know, there's one tuba player in any major orchestra and you have somebody to <laughs> die. <laughs> and it's not exactly a versatile instrument. So I don't regret the fact that he talked me out of it, but I always wonder 
what it would have been like if I had grown up in a culture where that wouldn't necessarily have been the narrative that I was raised with. That's really interesting because I had sort of a, a backwards uh, experience in that when I was younger, my dad was the one who was very afraid for me, who was worried about the possibility of uncertainty and you know, lack of financial security and all the, the worries that go along with a creative career. And it, uh, I think from his own perspective, he didn't want me to go through any of the difficulties that he had. So he was the one that was much more against my going in that direction. And my mom was always like completely supportive about it. And she would say to my dad, you know, aren't you thrilled and delighted and, and honored that your daughter is interested in sort of following in your footsteps in some ways. And so there was, there was some conflict about that as I, as I was growing up. Um, because it also, it took me a while to, to really get clear about it and, and figure it out. Um, you know, because of my interesting educational path, I was in a situation where I was told um, that I had many possibilities. You know, I could, I could, Basically, you know, if I wanted to go to law school or graduate school or you know, all these other possible careers were there, and the fact that I had that sort of multipotentiality for a long time, I feel didn't help me. That it was actually a barrier to full-on commitment to deciding. You know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to find a six-string electric violin that straps on my body, and I'm going to figure out how to sing at the same time, and I'm going to write my own songs, and I'm going to get out there. And, um, and it took me a while. It took me really until um, I finally moved to New York when I was 26 years old um, to get that going and to really start to be clear about it. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned your uh, educational path, which I happen to be privy to, but I was wondering if you could tell us uh, about it in a bit more detail for our listeners. Sure. Um, well, I, uh, I grew up in Virginia and went through the school system there. Um, and I, it's a little bit of a blur to me. I don't really remember how this happened, but I was an early reader. And so I ended up... Um, skipping forward into first grade a little bit early. And then when I was in um, later elementary school and middle school, they had combined classes of two grades in one. And somehow two times in a row, I ended up going through all both years in one year. So I just sort of uh, went forward until I was, um, until I was the youngest person by far. Um, and so then after I went through, uh, through college, um, and I mentioned before that I was a little bit cautious because of all this kind of socially cautious. And I was, a, I was a real rule follower. And so in college, my big act of rebellion was to join the army. <laughs> I wanted to be independent and pay for college. And so I joined the army, ultimate, ultimate rule following. Um, but it was really valuable. I mean, it got me in shape for the first time. It really taught me discipline. But I think probably the most valuable thing I found there was my voice. Because as a cadet, I had to not only take orders, which I was good at, but I also had to learn to give orders, which I was terrible at. <laughs> you know, nice girls don't do that, right? Loudly tell other people what to do, especially the cute boys that I was trying to impress in school. And, uh, but I got good enough at it to pass and it made me a better singer. It made me a better musician. It made me able to 
have perseverance and, you know, stand up to some of the more difficult personalities that might be in the music business. And so after that, uh, I, I, I felt better about getting out there and doing my thing. I started writing songs and moved to New York. And at that time, I was thinking of myself as sort of a Sarah McLaughlin with a violin type of person with, a, with that kind of sound. And <clears throat> it took me a, a couple of years to uh, find the electric violin that I play now, uh, which is called a Viper. It is a kind of wacky looking electric violin. It looks like a flying V-shaped guitar and it has six strings as opposed to the normal four of a violin and straps onto my body and, you know, looks sort of like a futuristic, you know, Borg type <laughs> appendage. Um, and, but the great thing about it was it, it allowed me to sing and play at the same time, which was something I actually didn't know how to do. And I found very, very difficult. Um, but there was one night in New York when I went to a show at the Bitter End and I saw this other woman playing and singing, uh, playing the violin and singing at the same time. Her name is Allison Cornell. And she was so inspiring to me that I went home and I just shedded for a couple years to, <laughs> to figure out how I could do this to really be comfortable singing and playing at the same time. And that kind of became uh, a little the trademark for me. It helped me get gigs. Um, it helped me get my first big gig, which was with Cindy Lauper. When I walked into the audition with that instrument and, uh, and played the music, uh, it made, really made me stand out. And that whole experience really changed my life. Hmm, wow. So uh, you had this very unusual and accelerated educational path uh, to Princeton and, you know, parents who are both left and right brained. When you think about the, the experiences that you had growing up, uh, how does it inform, you know, the kind of parent that you're being and how do you think about educating uh, your own children? What a great question. I think that it has made me sort of open up my mind in terms of what is quote right and correct <laughs> in terms of education and more apt to be interested in finding uh, an individualistic path, right? Not to be, um, not to be so interested in what experts say, but to really follow my gut. And for my son, um, that has, has really meant, you know, figuring out what works best for him. I mean, I, th I think that the educational system that has worked for a long time, which is sort of like a, you know, factory worker cultivation, <laughs> um, isn't necessarily the, the right way to go. Um, I, his, his early childhood was spent, um, in a wonderful Montessori school, very small and, um, <clears throat> and very nurturing and caring. And, what I love about that method is that you're not tied to a desk at all. It's very free flowing. You can choose what you're going to work on. Um, and you also have a lot of give and take as far as you're, you're not only learning, but you're teaching those who are younger than you. Um, so you have these mixed age classrooms where when you get to sixth grade, you're really doing a lot to help the, the third graders out. Um, and I think that's a really beautiful way to cultivate 
um, not only learning, but the ability to communicate what you've learned. And I feel like it, you really learn you really learn it by teaching. And I think that it's probably why we are drawn to teach about our struggles. And that's why you know, I've been drawn to, to do what I'm starting to do now with the, my Peak Aliveness um, the program, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But um, in terms of education, there are, there are just, in, this is such an incredible time to be alive and to be a parent, right? And to be a student, because <laughs> there are just, the infinite ways that you can go forward, you know, I mean, some people don't even care if uh, about going to college and, you know, some people think that's the, that's the way you got to do it. Um, and I'm not sure what's going to be the case for my, my son who is very um, naturally verbal and uh, loves visual arts and is also getting in touch with his own musical um ability. <laughs> uh, and we'll see, we'll see what happens. Um, yeah, I, I feel very open minded. And I feel like I'm not tied to any agenda right now. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. You know, the thing that, the other thing that really struck me, I think uh, about the earlier part of your story is a combination of left brain, right brain. And I think I definitely tend to fall more on the right brain side, which is probably why I had such a difficult time in the earlier part of my career, because I didn't have this capacity to set deadlines, to meet deadlines, which is, is ironic because now I do something on a very consistent schedule and write books, all of which require deadlines. Yeah. But I'm wondering if you fall into either category, how do you develop the capacity of the other? So if you're right brain, how do you develop the capacity of the left? If you're right left brain, how do you develop the capacity of the right? I think that is such a great question. And I love hearing that <laughs> you struggle with, with the organizational part. Um, I actually, you know, I talk about being such a combination of these two, but I, I feel like I tend toward the left brain, you know, even in creative pursuits. And I feel like I can easily, you know, compensate by trying to plan out everything. <laughs> um, and so um, the big pain point for me throughout my life has been um, improvisation and spontaneity with that. Uh, and so ways that I work on that is, you know, to, trying to develop intuition, trying to develop my ability to trust myself, um, trying to develop my ability to just go with the flow, even if it's not planned. Um, and honestly, putting myself in those situations over and over again, and just sort of you know, throwing myself in the deep end works. <laughs> Taking an improv class, for example. Um, but it goes all the way back to, you know, my, my playing with Cindy Lauper. Like she was my best teacher for this. And there was this, this one moment that will live on in my memory forever when it was a couple weeks into the tour and we had just finished the song, money changes everything. And she got on the mic to the audience and she said, Hey everybody, this is Valerie. She's a classical violinist. She plays very polite, very proper but I want her to play like a barbarian. <laughs> and she shoved me to the front of the stage and 
I raised my bow and I looked out at 20,000 people and somehow I didn't worry about what I was going to play. I just went with it. It flowed and the audience went wild <laughs> and it was a peak moment. I felt so alive. It was awesome. Right. And then she did that same thing every night after that, except sometimes I wouldn't feel that way. And so I started thinking, you know, why don't I feel this way every time? Not just the thrill of it, but like the, the feeling of freedom and that deep connection, right? That, that's uh, that real right brain thing. Um, and yeah, so, so I spent the next you know, 20 years having these moments that would, that would bubble up, but they weren't something that I could really control. And it wasn't really until, you know, 2014 until from 2014 to 20 to last year when we were working on the latest musical that we were writing, which was about Ernest Shackleton. If you haven't heard of Ernest Shackleton, he is, uh, he was an explorer who in 1914, set out to cross Antarctica by land. And he took his crew of 27 men. They sailed from England. They got almost all the way to Antarctica when their ship was trapped in the ice and it didn't move for seven months. And when spring finally came, instead of the ice thawing, it started buckling and crushing the ship and it destroyed it and it sank. And then Shackleton spent the next two years getting his, himself and all of his men out alive. Every single person he saved. And so when we decided to write a musical about this, uh, <clears throat> we decided it would be not a 28-person musical, but a two-person musical, and I would be one of the actors. Um, and the character that I would play was an electric violin playing composer surrounded by all of her equipment, um, she had a baby. I don't know why I was cast for this. <laughs> uh, and the other actor would be Ernest. So we did all our readings and our workshops, and the show's getting some buzz, so we're going to take it from Seattle to a couple cities to New York. And right in the middle of all this, uh, one morning, my husband comes to me, and my husband, who was uh, my creative partner and um, the spouse for 20 years, um, he came to me one morning and said, uh, I fall in love with one of our best friends and I don't want to be married to you anymore. And I didn't see that coming at all. And <clears throat> I was devastated for months. And uh, we eventually got divorced and dissolved our writing partnership. But the Shackleton show was still happening. It was going on, going forward. And I was going to be in it. I was going to write it, um, but for the first time without my partner. So when I sat down to try to work, it felt really bad because I didn't really trust myself. Right? I didn't, I, that intuition, that right brain, it, it, was, it was not quite there for me. And I was so used to running everything by him. Right? Every idea, every lyric, every, you know, every email. And 
So when I sat down to try to be creative on my own without him, um, I realized that although you know we had been extremely creative and productive and collaborative together, made beautiful things together, um, within that, I was also really looking for approval, right? I was that cautious little girl looking for validation from him. And <clears throat> so I had to face that. And the, the shame of that, right? The, the nakedness, the vulnerability. Uh, <laughs> but it didn't really matter how I felt because the show was going forward, right? This was a train on the tracks and it was a million dollar production, highly visible. There's lots of people depending on me and I couldn't let them down. So, you know, my partner was gone. He had abandoned me and the show, but I was moving forward with it alone. And of course, not alone at all because theater is highly collaborative. Um, <clears throat> there was a wonderful director to work with and a book writer and a whole amazing team. But I had to generate ideas on my own. I had to trust my instincts, which were pretty shaky. And a lot of times I would go to work and I would feel like a fraud. I would feel like an imposter and I would want to, you know, quit and go watch Netflix and eat ice cream for the rest of my life. And <laughs> of course I couldn't do that. Um, and I was forced through that experience to grow, um, kicking and screaming, but I did. And the great thing was that this, what I was forced into was this beautiful story of this real life hero, Ernest Shackleton, who had an ability to just be present always, to be present in the moment, to never give up hope. Um, and he had this belief, this relentless belief that optimism is a form of moral courage. And so I, had, I was living in that every day. And that was so helpful. It was a freaking godsend for me. And going through that, and then months later when we're in the performance and at the climactic moment of the show, I'm standing, Ernest Shackleton and my character are standing on top of a mountain peak. And we hear in the distance the whistle of a whaling station. And for us, that means we found civilization and we're saved, right? We don't know how we're gonna get down there, but we know that we will. And the sense of full joy and aliveness was so palpable in that moment every night. And I realized that it was, there it was. There, there was that peak aliveness feeling, that Cindy Lauper feeling, same thing, except it wasn't just intermittent. Like this was actually happening consistently every night. And I realized that I was onto something with this, that it was something that had to do with the creative process. It was about being in the moment, it was about facing directly into fears, and it was about being in service of something bigger than myself. And I was also, <laughs> I was having a blast doing it. And so that sort of epiphany led me to start and launch uh, what I'm doing right now, which is this peak aliveness program, right? It's based on the word peak, and P is for presence, being present in your body and in the moment. Um, e is for edge, for exploring that edge right where you're uncomfortable and afraid. And A 
is for awe, like feeling like you are part of something that is bigger than yourself, right? That sense of wonder and reverence and mystery and connection with the, with the larger world. And the final one is K, K for kick, which is getting a kick out of life, being playful. Um, and those are the practices, right? Being present, facing fear, being part of something bigger, and, and being playful um, and deliberately creating that in life. And for me, that has been the way, not, you know, I'm a work in progress and I certainly have not solved <laughs> everything, but for, for me, I feel at my most balanced, at my most um, expansive, and at my, my, my most creative, my most bold um, when I do these things. And then I feel like I do have both, right? Like I am together, I am disciplined, I got the left brain going on, and I feel intuitive, I feel like I can trust my gut, and that is what I'm on about these days, uh, combining music with this methodology and sharing it with as many people as I can. Wow. Uh, so many questions. Uh, <laughs> uh, you, know, you mentioned uh, Cindy Lauper as a teacher, and I knew that I didn't want to get out of this conversation without talking about teachers in general. Oh, yeah, yeah. You being a musician, uh, having you know done two interviews with Anders Ericsson, the second of which uh, people haven't heard yet, the man who invented the concept of deliberate practice. I was wondering about the role that teachers have played in your life as a musician and also about uh, how you practice and how you improve and what it is that distinguishes people who are actually you know, going through with what is truly deliberate practice versus the people who are just going through the motions. Yeah. Well, that's, that's such a great question because it's so easy to do that. Like we're, you know, all of us are drawn to doing what feels great and doing what feels comfortable and, you know, celebrating that is a huge part of, you know, with the joy of doing something creative, like you want to feel great. That's what <laughs> music is about. Um, but you also, in order to improve, um, you know, it's, it's, it's the E and peak, right? It's going directly to where it feels bad, <laughs> where, you know, where it doesn't sound good, where you're, you know, you're, you're just not quite skilled enough yet. Um, and, and living there for, you know, at least half the time that you're practicing, I think is absolutely essential in order to get better. Um, my favorite teachers throughout my life have been the ones who bring Again, it's that I keep coming back to this somehow, but it's that it's that combination, right? They have they have joy, they have exuberance, they have um, just a, like sizzle about them when they play. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who play in classical orchestras who. You know, you could, you know the, the people who just passed the audition and have arrived at their gig and they're thrilled to be there. You know, they sit up tall in their chairs and they're excited and you can see them when you go see the orchestra concert because your eyes are drawn to them. And then there are some people who, oh, you know, as the years go by and they get sort of more bored with what they're doing, you see their whole body language change. Um, and my, my teacher, my violin teacher during high school is a member of the National Symphony and he was never like that. Right? He would just always have a grin on his face. He loved playing music, and you could just see it. You know, you would go to see the orchestra, and, and your eye would be drawn to him. His name was Ed Johannet, and he was awesome. Um, and he was so encouraging. Like, my very first violin teacher told me I should quit immediately because I was double-jointed, 
And he was so discouraging and awful. Um, luckily, my parents saw right through that, and they said, this is a very unhappy, bitter man. We are going to give you a better teacher, because I would have quit. Um, going from Mr. Johannet, um, then I had a, another wonderful violin teacher named Daniel Heifetz, who was a you know, concertizing violinist. And he also taught in, at Peabody in Baltimore, where I took some courses. And <clears throat> he had just this beautiful, not rigid or uptight at all, but just sort of dancer-like posture and presence. Um, and so I always wanted to look like that, um, really standing tall and taking up space on stage. Um, and then Cindy Lauper was just a super fun maverick, right? She was a total rebel in every way. And uh, she really championed women. Um, she, she, unlike some other stars who were you know, told by their managers that they needed to make sure they would never be upstaged, so they would put their band in black t-shirts and make sure they were always behind them, <laughs> right? Cindy, total opposite of this. You know, she hired stylists and, you know, made sure our hair was crazy colors and that we looked awesome. And, <laughs> and she would do things like push us out front to take solos and really like shake things up, get us out of our comfort zones. Um, and she was also a great vocal teacher. Like she really was the first person to say, you know, you, I have a very natural alto voice, but she said, no, 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 you're going to sing soprano and you're going to belt it. Right. So she made me belt the high notes and change the way I sang. Um, in a way that allowed me to have much more power and range. Um, <clears throat> and she would also just do crazy physical antics. You know, she would throw me down on the stage and she would pretend to be pulling me across the stage by my hair and she would jump on top of the bass player and, you know, run around and that's sort of what made her exciting. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and so she made a practice of putting people in uh, just slightly uncomfortable situations to see what would happen. <laughs> And so if we could do that with ourselves, <laughs> then I think we can really expand um, and, and be fearless while we do it. You know, I wonder what's going to happen if I, you know, use this weird distortion sound or if I try this new thing um, and just realize that th there really aren't any rules. We live in a time where we can kind of make things up for ourselves and it's probably easier now to be a rebel or a maverick than ever in history. Um, and I think whatever holds us back is our own fears and worries about fitting in or not being um, accepted. And I think that getting past that and being your boldest, most unapologetic self is, is the way forward. And I certainly feel at my best and most alive when I do that. Wow. Uh so I want to ask you one more thing about somebody like Cindy Lauper. Sure. Uh, what misperceptions do you think people who are not famous and successful at the level of sort of, you know, household name, like, you know, with the exception of our listeners who are probably millennials, everybody listening to this knows who Cindy Lauper is, I'm assuming. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think even they do. Like she's got a continuing fame. Yeah, my son knows who she is because she was on a you know Super Mario TV show. What assumptions do you think that those of us who are not at sort of you know iconic status level make about people like that that are not true, having been up close and personal to somebody like this? Uh, what misperceptions? Yeah. Um, uh, well, I, th I think probably in her case that she's always on 
Like she, she is one of those very naturally funny people. She's a great interview. Um, and she's got a lot of pizzazz, you know, but she also gets exhausted and quiet, you know? Um, and you know, that the, the, that their private selves are the same as their public selves. It isn't necessarily always the case, you know? And I, I was back to back. I went on two different tours, one with, with Cindy, who is, you know, wacky and very gregarious in, in public and then can be different from that in private. And then I went on tour with Joe Jackson, um, who, I don't know if you remember him, he had, uh, you know, is she really going out with him? Um, was his first big hit. And then uh, Stepping Out was his biggest. And <clears throat> he was sort of an opposite sort of, of celebrity, where it was much harder for him to have that public, um, out, that public exuberance, right? He was you know, very much so on stage, but then if he was approached by a fan, it would be um, a little bit awkward sometimes and, and more uh, restrained. And then on the bus in private, like once he would trust you, <laughs> uh, then his personality would come out, right? So then it was you know, like fun and games and you know, playing Scrabble and hanging out and all that stuff. So yeah, it, you, you never really know. I mean, some, I think people's personalities now in the age of social media and you know, everybody being so available and accessible all the time, there's yeah. less of that dichotomy. Um, but there- It still exists, I think. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting because I, I, I ran into, I, I was walking the streets of San Francisco once and I saw Dave Chappelle, the comedian. And mm -hmm. of course, you know, if you've seen Dave Chappelle on stage, he's hilarious and he's outgoing. And I, somebody walked up to him and said, hey, can I take a picture? And he was really awkward about the whole thing and said, sorry, I don't like having my picture taken. And you, you could tell it. It was like, wow, that was so not what I was expecting. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, sometimes people like there's a weird sort of um, feeling of ownership that I, you know, I can understand where that would come from, right? Like one of the times I was on tour with Cindy, she was pregnant and people, I remember we were staying at a hotel and the gig was over like, and all she just, she was, she was just hanging out with us with the band and you know, we were all just you know, sitting in the hotel bar, having, having a drink and talking. And then some people came in that were staying at the same hotel that had seen the show and just, you know, were huge fans and they wanted to hug her and they wanted to touch her belly and all this like very invasive stuff. And she, you know, and she didn't want to, the tour manager just had to sort of get in between them. And they were so angry. And these people were saying, you know, we came all the way from, you know, from England and, and, you know, how dare you? And it's like, they got really angry that, that they didn't get to, you know, physically touch her. And so I can see you know, where you have to, you have to protect yourself sometimes if you're in that situation. And it doesn't mean that you're um, a bad person. It doesn't mean that you're antisocial or ungrateful. It just means maybe you need a little space. So I get it. Yeah. yeah. One other pattern that I feel like I've noticed throughout our conversation, it seems that you have the ability to sort of look at the world around you and connect dots between seemingly disconnected things. Uh, mixing yeah. sort of singing you know, with your violin and all that. And I, I remember, you know, the, the first time I ever saw uh, Dave Matthews live in concert and I saw Boyd Tinsley play, I thought, well, I didn't know a violin could make that sound. Uh, and I was so blown away by, by that idea. And, you know, it, it seems to me that this ability to connect dots leads to really interesting things. 
how did you develop that and how do other people develop that? Wow, what a great question. First of all, thank you for the compliment. Uh, I really think that's what creativity is, is making connections that have not been made before. Because it's really easy to think, you know, oh, everything's been done, right? There's only 12 notes. <laughs> like, how can we possibly make something different? Um, I, am, I love the Dave Matthews Band also. And um, I, one of the great things that I love about, uh, about Boyd is, is his exuberance, right? He is so in a way <laughs> and so rhythmic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is a... That, that attitude is something that um, it's, it's harder to find in, in the classical world, right? Um, where you're, you're trying to be correct, you're trying to play all the right notes, and you have that, you know, that sort of you know, precision, which is fantastic. Um, <clears throat> but combining that with the exuberance is, is something that creates excitement, um, I think. And... Um, Oh my God, I forgot your question. <laughs> How do you develop <laughs> the, the ability to connect dots? <laughs> How can you develop the ability to, con- to connect the dots? Between seemingly um, disparate things. Yeah. Well, I think challenging yourself to just to come up with ideas. Um, I love... Uh, Who's that guy? James Altucher? I'm not sure if that's how you yeah. say it, but I love, I get some of his emails and I love his practice of you have to come up with 10 ideas a day, even if they're horrible. Um, and I think just using that muscle of creativity and doing it playfully just opens the valve, right? So yeah, I find that my son is a huge teacher for me in this way. Like I didn't really think I needed practice on being playful mm-hmm. Until I had him, and I realized, oh yeah, I do. <laughs> I do. And you know, he like most children, he approaches things in a very playful manner, and he prioritizes humor. And so, I have found that you know, ever since I'm very early age with him, that communications um, and storytelling have become a huge part of what we do. You know, walking down the street and and we're we're telling a story, and because I'm you know. Years ago, when he was really little, I would have to make it clear. I would have to make it concise, and um, I would have to keep his attention. <laughs> and that exercise made me a better lyricist. It made me a better uh, songwriter, just because of, you know the connection between communicating to a child and communicating super clearly and concisely what you mean in a song is very related to each other, even though you don't think that it might be. Um, and, you know, now we find playful ways to do the dishes together and, you know, we'll do a rap battle and <laughs> um, really bad rap battles. Um, I don't know how these freestyle rappers do it. They're, <laughs> you know, and I'm a professional lyricist. I'm good with words and it is freaking so hard to do it, but we do it and it just cracks us up because, because it's so bad and funny. Um, and so, you know, making it, is that answering your question? I'm not yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> uh, so I think just putting yourself in playfully creative situations um, and just novel situations, you know, doing uh, yoga without judgment <laughs> or, you know, doing a sport and, and not being competitive about it or whatever. And just like ex- exercising all the mu- muscles of being free, like feeling that sense of freedom and that sense of connection, like being comfortable with ourselves enough so we can take a risk. And I think that that's true in, in like physical, um, you know, 
working out or sports or you know, fitness, but it's also true with communications with each other. Um, I think it's also true with, you know, anything, you know, emails, leaving a voicemail for somebody. Um, you know, I can get anxious about what I'm going to say on a, <laughs> on that. That's creative. Um, and just putting yourself in that constant, um, just, just where it's, you know, the juicy edge of your resistance. Um, I, my favorite image of, of, of this idea actually comes from the animal world, um, from the hermit crab, right? A hermit crab, uh, its body continues to grow throughout its life, but its shell doesn't, right? And I, I got this from Josh Waitzkin, you know, uh, international chess master and uh, a world champion martial artist. So somebody who really knows a lot about learning and fear. Um, he says, and I, I love this image, that when we let our fear rule us, we're like an anorexic hermit crab, meaning that we decide that we're going to live small so we don't grow out of our comfy little shell. And I think every time we can throw off the shell and be okay with being, you know, our little pink, naked, vulnerable selves in the, in the world, um, in whatever context that is, that allows us to grow into our next edge, grow into our next shell, um, and always be comfortable with that ability. And that, that's where we do make the connections, right? In that, like, sizzly place, that place just beyond the comfort zone in, the, in that place of possible resistance. And I feel like that's where we can make all of those intuitive leaps and go forward in the way that we can be our best selves. Wow. You know, it's interesting to to listen to you describe this process. Uh, reminds me of something I experienced recently. Like I've been obsessively watching David Letterman's new show, the one that he has on Netflix. And I think after probably three or four episodes, the thought that crossed my mind was, why can't I do that? And so I started just running scenarios through my head and I was like, well, I don't think there's anything preventing us from doing that. So that's actually what we're doing in New York, uh, August 9th. <gasps> As a result of cool. we'll see what happens if we did this in front of a live audience, uh, just because I thought it was like, wow, that would add a whole different dynamic to this. Yeah, that's it. You're doing it. <laughs> You're peak alive. Yeah. That's fantastic. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah. Well, this has been really, really uh, eye-opening and amazing and inspiring. I mean, I've, I've loved learning uh, about your creative process. So I want to finish with my final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? That is a great question. Um, I've had a blast being here too. Thank you so much. Um, <clears throat> I think that someone is unmistakable when they are unapologetically authentically real when they are themselves. And I feel like the fact that you don't have to, when you're not comparing yourself to someone else and not trying to live up to someone else's standard of what you think something should be, but instead taking very accurate um, stock of who you are, what your strengths are, and what the weaknesses are that you want to shore up, and then you have a vision of what it is you want, what it is you want to create, and then you just move in that direction and use, you know, using your own 
unique skills, whatever those are, and not trying to be like anybody else. Um, I can't remember who it was that said, I think it was a music producer, uh, like Daniel Benoit, somebody like that, who said, in order to find your best sound, first make a list of all the ways in which you sound like other people, <laughs> and then make a list of ways in which you sound different for other people. And then you throw that first list away, and then you use the second list, and you try to make the most of that one. And I love that concept. And uh, I feel like my mission is to get closer and closer to that. Um, and I know that I'm drawn most to the people who are that way, completely, unapologetically, boldly, you know, able to laugh at themselves also. <laughs> like, like, don't take yourself, not taking yourself too seriously, um, but just being the centered, most authentic person you. Well, I think that makes a really fitting and poetic end to our conversation. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and everything that you're up to? Oh, thank you. Um, well, my website, valvagoda.com. Um, Vagoda is V-I-G-O-D-A. And there is a bunch of stuff on there uh, about music and about theater, um, about the Shackleton Show, about Pico Liveness. And that's sort of the hub to find me at valvagoda.com. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that, and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.